Almighty God, we give thee thanks for this day, this group gathered, and for thy word that is before us. Open our minds and our hearts to receive and to learn from it. And now may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. I apologize that I had to run away early last week and go get vested. I regretted after listening to the recording of the class, it sounded like a really, a, a really high octane discussion, and um, uh, I realized how much I had actually missed uh, not being here. One of the things that I think is important as we as we read our way through Romans, which is pretty tough sledding. I mean, let's face it, we're not, we're not dealing with, with children's homilies here. This is, this is Paul's most um, intense and detailed explanation of Christian theology. And next to the book of the letter to the Hebrews, I don't know that there is any more um, concentrated and fully explained systematic Christian theology in the entire Bible. So it's worth every now and then taking a, if you will, an elevator ride all the way up to the top floor to look down on it so that we can see it more clearly from above and realize where we are in the context of the whole thing. Um, recall we have said for the last couple of weeks that in his opening chapters, Paul is offering an analysis of God's judgment. And after his introductory, uh, introductory remarks in uh, chapter 1 and his, his greetings and his explanation for why he's writing, he gets right into it, starting with verse 18. He writes in chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. That's about as Old Testament, I guess, as one can get. It is, it is uh, the statement by the ultimate Pharisee about the... Um, about the standard of the law and the, and the punishment that awaits those who fail to meet it. Uh, he's, we get in chapter 1 a sort of a, of a summary of the fall of man, if you will. Verse 20, he writes, Ever since the creation of this world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, meaning humans. So he gives us a, a first step is natural revelation. God is seen through the natural world as, as existing. And then in verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. In other words, he speaks of humanity falling into idolatry. 
And then he, he writes, starting in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He writes about human debasement that came from idolatry. And then starting in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. He's writing about God's condemnation and our own judgment against ourselves as humans, as human beings. And then, in verses 10 and 11, he speaks, he writes, first of Jew and then the Greek. He's He's emphasizing that this, this condemnation, if you will, this judgment from God is universal and it is um, impartial. It applies both to the Jews and to the Greeks, which is his shorthand reference to all of the Gentile non-Jewish world. Now, um, Stott tells us that a lot of scholars have broken this down as first addressing the sins of the Greek world and then addressing the sins of the Jewish world. And there's a lot of um, validity in that because all through the epistle he divides his analysis and he speaks in this dualism, the Jews and the Greeks. But, notwithstanding that the chapter 1, dealing with idols and dealing with sexual immorality and dealing with all sorts of lusts and, and jealousies, notwithstanding that those were certainly features of the classical Gentile world, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, all of the other nations who fell within their sphere of cultural and political influence, but it also describes the history of the Jews. Think back to the Old Testament, starting in the book of Judges. We have plenty of idolatry. We have plenty of sexual immorality. We have plenty of hatred. One only has to read through, well, it's, it's a massive task, but to read the books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and we see how the, the nation of Israel, the kingdom, descended from the greatness of David and Solomon down into squalor and eventually fell to ruin. First the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom carried off into exile and no longer even existing in the promised land as, as the nation of Israel for several hundred years. And so there's nothing uniquely Greek or Roman or Gentile about the depravity that uh, Paul addresses in chapter 1, nor is there anything particularly Jewish about the living by the law that he starts to address in chapter 2. That sounds a bit like heresy, but think about it for a moment. There was plenty of um, Gentile morality in the rest of the world, even among those Gentiles who did not look to Israel as something special. Of course, we saw those kind of Gentiles all through the Old Testament, and we even see them in the New Testament. Um, remember Cornelius, the centurion, who came to Paul. 
but also we know that there were uh, there were classical Romans and Greeks who led lives of the greatest probity, the greatest moral upright uh, justification. I use that word advisedly. Uh, Stott gives us the example of Seneca, the Roman Stoic philosopher who was the tutor to the young Nero before he was emperor, when he was only the nephew of the, um, of the emperor, and who was known for his uh, moral sense uh, that came through in his writings. He was a just and upright man. He was a thoroughly Roman uh, character. He had no sense of the Jewish, and yet, and yet, when Paul writes about humanity having this this sense of God from the natural world, um, we we kind of think of, of Gentiles like Seneca. We think of Gentiles who, without ever having been exposed to the law, with ever having, um, without ever having been exposed to the relationship between Yahweh and his people Israel, nevertheless had this natural law understanding of a creator. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. But I think that Stott makes a very persuasive case that Paul is writing more universally here in his opening chapters about the very nature of the human condition rather than dividing this early in his epistle, his treatment between Jews and Greeks. We will get to the first mention that he makes of Jew and Greek in a, in a few verses here today. But the last thing that I would leave you with on that point is the beginning of chapter 2, where I understand you got last week. Um, in chapter 2, verse 1, and again in verse 3, there is a reference in my translation that reads, whoever you are, in those verse 1 and 3. In the in the translations y'all are reading, um, the ESV, what is what is written? Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are. Oh, How does man. it? Oh man, okay, oh man, in that version. Same in the in what y'all are reading. Oh man, that's literal. That's a direct translation from the Greek. He's not speaking, oh Jew, or oh Greek. He says, oh man, or O anthrope, as, um, as it's written in the Greek, meaning humanity. So I think Stott is on to something here when he's, uh, he's gently correcting the scholars who, who believe that this early in the letter, Paul is addressing himself to the difference between Jews and Greeks. Paul is, in fact, addressing all of humanity. And again, it's important to see it from the top floor of the building, looking down on it. Paul is starting off his letter with uh, an explanation of God's judgment. We have to know that before we get to the gospel. So, if we would, um, with, with, with that preamble out of the way, let's get to the lesson for today. If we will go to Romans chapter 2, 
starting at verse 12 and going through verse 16. If somebody would be kind enough to read that for us. That's short. I'll try that. <laughs> Easy words. <clears throat> all right, go ahead. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Thank you. Very well read. Um, the title of today's um, lesson is Storing Up Wrath. And I actually took that from a, um, a verse that y'all read last week. Uh, verse 5, I didn't think that Steve would get as far as he did, but that's okay, because this is really what Paul is addressing him, himself to, storing up wrath, uh, the human condition. So as Coffee read, there is, um, Paul is, is making a very interesting point about sinning apart from the law, in sinning under the law. And he states something that may seem to us like a bit of a heresy, that Gentiles who do not possess the law, but who instinctively do what the law requires, will be justified. Anybody have any immediate reaction to that? Brian? Uh, well, if, if, if we're all to be judged, uh, then I think it makes perfect sense that, that you know, we're, we're, if we're all judged equally, kind of from, from the beginning, then, uh, you know, each one of us, whether we're a Christian or a Jew or, or, or an atheist, we'll, we'll, we'll all be judged the same. You know, we, here are the things that we did well, uh, where we were faithful and, and so on, and here are the things uh, that, that, that it mean when in verse 14 Paul writes that when Gentiles who do not possess the law do instinctively what the law requires these though not having the law are a law to themselves are a law to themselves is a little bit confusing because it implies that they that they have in a very modern sense, 
you know, this is, this is what's natural for me. This is what uh, I, this is my comfort zone. This is the way I am and therefore, um, according to my personal morality, this works. Well, what I believe, in fact, Paul was writing, because that's, that's clearly the modern sense of spirituality in a lot of people. What I believe Paul was instead addressing, what those words mean, is something about natural law and natural revelation. Now we got to we got to grapple with that here because in these early passages it almost sounds like Paul is saying that if Gentiles are either by accident or by their natural inward morality if they are as moral as Jews, then they are righteous in God's sight, and therefore they are in the covenant and they achieve salvation. I think we've got to put salvation off, off the table right now. Again, these chapters are about judgment. And Paul is not writing a quick little summary of theology, kind of like what Brian gave us. Paul is not writing a quick summary of, that might be gleaned from one of Christ's parables, the kingdom of God is like, X, Y, Z. Instead, he is laying out in this systematic theology all of the steps to understanding Christianity in its complexity. And right now, he's only dealing with judgment. So I think it's important that we as readers try to step back, try to put ourselves into the minds of a reader who is not a Christian believer. Obviously, he's writing to a lot of Christian believers, but perhaps Christian believers whose understanding of the gospel is very, very unformed, which, of course, it would be because in the early church, they didn't know much except little bits and pieces of the gospel. Paul instead is writing in a way that I think has a lot of application to our modern post-Christian era where we hear it over and over again that all religions basically teach the same thing and that there are multiple paths to God and that one needs only to really aspire to the life of great morality and uprightness and in that way is justified in the eyes of God. Paul is paying lip service, I think, to that attitude as a way of illustrating not universal salvation, but rather universal judgment. And he does that by making an important point that we alluded to back in chapter 1, that there is the understanding of a creator through the natural world. As we look around us, we see the evidence of intelligent design all around us. It's a big debate in our society about what to teach in science classes. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge debate among, uh, or rather between believers and secularists as to whether the universe was created by some superior intelligence or rather came to be by a 
series of um, of coincidences, which together fortuitous accidents. Fortuitous accidents. Um, as one has put it, um, if you get a group of monkeys and sit them in front of typewriters and let them bang away, if the monkeys have a long enough lifespan, eventually they will produce by sheer coincidence the collected works of William Shakespeare. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a bad metaphor, I think, for that, um, that evolutionary um, view of the creation of the universe, but I have, there's a problem, I don't want to get too far adrift into this, but I believe that what Paul is addressing himself most directly to is the ability of all humans to understand the nature of the created universe simply by observing the created universe. That the world is not only more complex than we know, but is more complex than we are our, our ability to comprehend it. So the, the evidence of a divine creator is there even in those who do not understand it, even those who do not understand the nature of the divine creator. They see it. They see the evidence of it, rather like the ripples that flow away in the water from where a stone is dropped into the water. We can't see the stone any longer, but we see the ripples, and we understand that a stone has dropped there. Taking that natural revelation one step further, Paul is arguing that among the Gentiles, those who have never heard the law, those who have never known the covenant between God and Israel, nevertheless, they have the law of God written in their hearts, which is to say that our inner sense of morality is placed there by God. It is more evidence of, of God. We all instinctively understand the law. A small child instinctively understands the law. How often do those of you who had more than one children, uh, more than one child, remember that one of your children runs up and says, she stole my toy. This is at an infantile level, a child speaking of justice. There is no justice. She stole my toy. That is evidence, I think, of, of the God gene. Um, I have a friend and interlocutor who is a non-believer, and some years ago she sent me an article where some worldly wise man had proposed that there has developed through evolution this God sense that by nature of our evolved, not created, but evolved um, higher thinking that we have this, this sense that there must be God and it's an evolutionary uh, developed sense. And I wrote back to her and I said, well, yes, or maybe God put it there. <laughs> which was a smart aleck response, but it really gets to the, to the nature of that, of that difference. Paul is writing here that even those who have never heard of Yahweh, have never known of the law, nevertheless have this internal sense of the law. And that's the sense in which I believe Paul is writing that they became a law unto themselves, not that 
they made up this, you know, this substitute morality where anything goes, but it works for me, and therefore it's moral, just the same as your God and your morality are moral. We don't judge because we're all just... Well, Paul is not saying that. Paul is instead saying, I believe, that those who did not know God through the same experience of Israel nevertheless have a sense of God, and we have a sense through natural law of what the moral law is. Now, I've got to draw a distinction right here that Stott draws. This is not the same as natural theology. It's not the same as saying that one can come to God through this natural law understanding that there's a creator there. Uh, Stott is quite clear, and I think Paul will develop his arguments quite clear. That's only through Christ. And there is no natural revelation, there is no uh, natural morality that will lead us to Christ. Only Christ will do that. The natural morality, though, and this is where in these chapters Paul is addressing himself to judgment, the natural morality first convinces us of our unworthiness and our inability to meet the standard that is set by God. Would you say that, that only Christ will lead us to Christ? Is that saying that it's predestination? Let's not get into predestination yet, and that's not a cop-out. Paul will speak to that later in the book of Romans. But it, it, he, he will speak to what, to what we know as predestination. But Paul will demonstrate in the, in the latter part of his epistle that only Christ will lead us to God, not Christ lead us to Christ, as you said. I, I know you meant Christ to God. He hasn't made that argument yet. Right now, we're focused on the fact that that natural law and natural revelation lead us to an understanding of God and to a moral sense. And, and he's about to develop the argument in a way that will show that we are all convicted by that standard. Can, can that suffice for right now, Dick? Yeah, I'd make one counter-additional semi-unrelated comment. I was listening to one of the religious stations here in Birmingham, and they had a, a Christian preacher talking about the difference between Islam and Christianity. And uh, he said that it's mainly a, a thing of bookkeeping that the, the people of Islam, uh, you get credit and debits and they're all listed and that's your motivation to get debits, to get credits. Whereas in Christianity, your motivation isn't to get credits, it's to love God for making you so free. That's all. Well, actually, it's, it's, it's sort of, you're saying that the difference between Islam and Christianity is that unlike Islam, Christianity shows us that we are unworthy and therefore only come to God through grace, right? And one might say it more broadly than just Islam, but that every other 
every other religion that preaches a moral code instinctively preaches, intrinsically preaches, that there is a way to keep the law. Christianity offers a completely different view and one that is what sets us apart. We can't keep the law. And this is what Paul is most emphatically writing to here. Any other thoughts about that? Brian? Brian's, let, let Brian go. And Frank, hold that thought. Go ahead, Brian. The, 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 the Jews of, of this era, um, they, they, if they were very uh, knowledgeable about the law, uh, I get the impression um, that some of them uh, thought that they actually were righteous people because they did, in fact, keep the law. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that, of course, is a far cry from what we believe that, that, that the law convicts us, that we, that we uh, try as we might, uh, can't come close to satisfying the law. And, and, that, we, and, and then at, at that point, we're, we're dependent completely on God's grace. But it, it, is that true that some of these people that... Uh, that uh, Paul was talking to would, would have thought that, that they were actually keeping the law? I think it is, and we're going to see that in a moment when we get to, che- when we get to verse 17. Before we get to verse 17, Frank, do you want to I just have ask? a question. Consider two options. Let's say on one hand you've got a truly evil person like Joseph Stalin or Hitler or whatever who has no... Faith in God's never, you know, darkened the door of a church or whatever. Then on the other hand, you've got a truly kind, and we probably have all known people like this, kind, um, think of a particular person, very generous, kind, wealthy, you know, gave away a lot, and very, very well thought of. Neither one of these guys, neither one of them had any faith, you know, a, a, a pronounced faith in God. Now, if both of them, take both these guys, this evil guy and this nice guy. And a week before they died, they made a true death, a true conversion. And asked for forgiveness and, and, and men. And um, and my question is, do you think or does the gospel teach that they are treated any differently in terms of being accepted into the kingdom? And I'm not talking about rewards after the, you know, after you get up there. I'm talking about in terms of being um saved. I mean, is it, and they both profess, you know, ask for forgiveness of their sins, and they both, you know, and, and in a sincere way, you think that they both are true the same. Toffee, do you want to answer that? Well, the parable of the laborers who are sent into the field at the, at the sixth hour through the twelfth hour, and the last laborers who went out, for, I guess, at the eleventh hour, they did. were paid exactly the same as those who went out at the sixth hour, because it was the master's right to do so, and that's and if you look at if you look at today's uh, gospel lesson, there there's a choice. Two people are sent to work in the vineyard, and one says, "No, I'm not going to go," but he repents and goes. And the other one says, "Oh, I'm going to go," and then he sneaks off to the alehouse and starts having shooters and doesn't go. Which one? Which one? Has done, which one has done the Father's will? The, one, the first one did the Father's will. He repented of his refusal and went forth and did what he, what he had agreed to do and what he knew was right. You know, had Adolf Hitler 
made a true deathbed confession. No evidence that he ever did. No evidence that he ever did. He's got as good a shot at it as you or I or anybody else that considers themselves a Christian. And Joseph Stalin, for instance, actually was a candidate for holy orders in the Russian Orthodox Church at one point in his life. So, you know, he knew. But he chose a different path. He had been exposed to it, and he knew the law was contained in the gospel. But he chose to, to well, do well, it. Well, he's two examples I'm thinking of. Joseph Stalin being one, maybe he did know the law. But I don't, I, I, I'm, just, it's, I'm not arguing one point or the other. I'm just kind of curious as to what, <coughs> uh, what, what the gospel says or what the church teaches about. Let's step, let's step back a moment and keep the focus on judgment a moment. Somebody read verses 17 through 24 of chapter 2. Some volunteer. All right, go ahead. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemous among the Gentiles because of you. Thank you. That, I think, is the answer to Brian's question. That is that among, among the nation of Israel, the law was viewed as God's special gift to the nation of Israel and the sign of God's special covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. So that, in the minds of a lot of Israelites, they had, through the law, a special path to God that was denied to those who were outside that covenant. Paul's mission in the early chapters of his epistle is to demonstrate that God's covenant relationship through Christ is offered to the entire world and that the law as a way to salvation is not reserved only to Israel and in fact is a standard that Israel has not kept and cannot keep any more than anyone else can keep. His early chapters demonstrate that the law gives us the understanding of a standard, but the law alone is condemnation. And that's the meaning of judgment. Now go back to verse 16 where he writes that, and this is a sort of a foreshadowing, 
he writes that on the day when according to my gospel God through Jesus Christ will judge the secret thoughts of all that is he is saying in the words of John Stott that our judge is also our savior that judgment through Christ is is going to be demonstrated in this epistle as justification, whereas judgment through the law will be demonstrated as condemnation. He's making in the passage that Mike just read, he's making a reference to more than just these individual Jews. And again, Starting at verse 17, he's addressing himself specifically to Jews and not just to all, all anthropone, all, all humanity. He's making a statement that reaches back into Jewish history. Having knowledge of the law, have you not broken the law? Have you not stolen? Have you not committed adultery? Have you not uh, worshipped idols? Have you not robbed temples? All of those can be found in great abundance in the Old Testament among the people of God. And at, at the very end of the chapter, and we're not going to have time to really plunge through all of it, he speaks of circumcision, which in the, in the Jewish worldview, it was a symbol of God's covenant with Israel that is Think of circumcision in the way that we think of, of um, a sacrament. We can all recite from, the, um, from what we learned in our confirmation class uh, that uh, the definition of a sacrament is what? An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It's in the catechism. Circumcision was to the Jews that same sort of thing. It was an outward and visible sign of their national, their, na their relationship as a nation with the Creator God. But Paul writes at the end of the chapter, he writes, those who are physically uncircumcised but keep the law will will condemn you that have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is true circumcision something external and physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It is spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise not from others, but from God. Paul is writing that circumcision minus obedience is the same as uncircumcision. And uncircumcision plus obedience is the same as circumcision. In other words, as the prophet Samuel said to Saul, God doesn't want your burnt offerings. He wants your obedience. And yet, again, stepping back, Paul is not saying that the way to God is to keep the law. He's if you will, he's got to first destroy that idol before he can reconstruct in, the, in, in his argument the true nature of salvation, the true way to God, which is through Christ Jesus. But first, 
he's got to convince us all of, uh, he's got to convince his readers and convince us all of the worthlessness that we all have under the law and how that worthlessness is equally applied to Jews as it is to Greeks. That having the law as a special gift from God doesn't do one thing toward bringing the believer to God. Only through Christ can that be realized. But first, we've got to wallow in this judgment for a while, for a few more chapters. And I will, I will end with a thought from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, once again, which I get thanks to John Stott. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was in prison, he spent like a year, a year and a half in prison, and only a week before the um, end of the war was he executed, a most grisly, awful execution in, in a concentration camp. But he wrote from prison that he thinks that it is not good to come too quickly to the New Testament. And what Stott understands Dietrich Bonhoeffer to be saying is that we have to, we have to contemplate the Old Testament for a while. We have to contemplate judgment before we can appreciate the salvation that's on offer from the New Testament. So... I'll leave you with that somewhat depressing thought that we've got to understand that the nature of judgment is two things. It is universal, that it is equally applied to Jews and to Gentiles. That's number one. And number two, that equally Jews and Gentiles suffer condemnation under the judgment that is the law. Only after we've internalized that are we open to the gospel through Jesus Christ, to that judgment that comes through Jesus Christ, that is, our judge being our Savior. Without him, our judge is the law. And judged by the law, we are all condemned. So, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, let's go off this next week and let that sink in and come back next week. I'm going to be in D.C. with my granddaughter and my son and daughter-in-law and my granddaughter-to-be and uh, we'll see you again in two weeks. Steve will be back in the corner seat and I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for all being here. Bye-bye.